President Trump seems to be bending the space-time continuum in order to fill a week with more news than it can scientifically contain. That's about right. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. There you go. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck From in Pacifica the Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, people-powered radio in L.A., in Oregon on 91.7 FM, KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM, WLRI in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM, KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. Thank you one and all to all of our affiliates. Glad to have them and you, our listeners, with us today. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us. Uh, joining us this just in as we go to air just just minutes ago, Desi Doyen, we have a new uh, we have a new FBI director. Oh, okay. Did you know? His name is uh, Christopher Wray, and he was overwhelmingly confirmed by the U.S. Senate to head the FBI, winning bipartisan support for his commitment to remain fiercely independent from any political pressure, reports Politico. Wray, of course, takes the place of Jim Comey, who was fired in May uh, by, uh, by the president for just no reason at all, just because, you know, things were a mess. Nothing, no reason. Anyway, uh, Ray now uh, was was uh, confirmed ninety-two to five. He um, pledged repeatedly during his confirmation process that he would not bend to Trump's will. Who, according to Comey, had asked the then FBI director for a loyalty pledge. Ray testified he was never asked to swear loyalty to the president, and if he had been, he would not pledge one thus winning over Democrats who have stymied a number of other high-profile Trump nominees, reports Politico. So there you go. New FBI director. He'll so get there's everything that. straightened up. Yep, that's just in. All right, coming up. Uh, so uh, remember when those armored vehicles rolled out in Ferguson, Missouri, a few years ago, um, and everyone became familiar with the well, sort of familiar in any event with the Pentagon uh, program that gives away surplus military grade equipment and weaponry to local police agencies. The, uh, it's called the uh, the 1033 program, the Department of Defense's 1033 program. Well, it turns out 
you don't have to be a police agency, apparently, to, re- to receive all of that lethal tactical weaponry for free from the Pentagon. You can just pretend to be one and still get millions of dollars of military weaponry from the Department of Defense for free. Uh, anyway, that's what a U.S. government accountability office sting was able to do recently. And boy, did it seem to work. We will be joined momentarily by the director at the USGAO unit that pulled all of that off to explain what happened and if anything will be done about it. That's coming up shortly. And uh, if you haven't heard this story, or even if you have, uh, it's kind of gob- gobsmacking, yeah, to be it's, frank. It's really what? Yeah, but because uh, we need more of that lately. Uh, but first, uh, as you know, it's been a rough couple of days. A very bad week so far for the infamous and now former White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci. Yes, that's right. (laughs) As uh, one Twitter user noted, uh, he got hired, divorced, had a baby and fired in 10 days like a fruit fly. Yes, his uh, his wife divorced him while she was nine months pregnant, just before she had the baby, uh, reportedly because he was so insanely ambitious and she can't stand Donald Trump, who, uh, as we now know, Scaramucci loves, loves, or at least he used to until he was fired by Donald Trump on Monday after General John Kelly took over as White House chief of staff and removed Scaramucci. On Monday, CNN reported that uh, the Mooch had been escorted off the White House grounds. Wow. Ignominiously. How loyalty is repaid. Talk about your falls from grace. But now this, just to make things worse for Anthony Scaramucci's week, uh, Anthony Scaramucci was incorrectly listed as dead. In the newest edition of the Harvard Law School Alumni oh. Directory, according Ow. to the Washington oh, Post. Man. That's a bad week right that there. Is. Uh, the Mooch, was, uh, who was suddenly removed from his new White House, uh, his new post as White House Communications Director, just 10 days after taking the position, reportedly has an asterisk next to his name in the new directory, mailed to alumni this week. The asterisk indicates that he passed away since the last directory uh, was published in 2011. Uh, The uh, Harvard uh, spokesman told The Washington Post, regrettably, there is an error in the Harvard Law School alumni directory in the listing for Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, You think? We offer our (laughs) sincere apologies to Mr. Scaramucci. The error will be corrected in subsequent editions. Well, if the last edition came out in 2011... That means the mooch may remain dead to Harvard for another six years, by my math. Ow. Of course, uh, Scaramucci's departure from the White House comes just days after that profanity-laced interview with The New Yorker in which he unloaded on former chief of staff Reince Priebus, calling him an effing paranoid schizophrenic and blasting chief strategist Steve Bannon for attempting to build his brand Though build his own brand is decidedly not the term of phrase that Scaramucci used to describe (laughs) Steve Bannon while he was still serving in the White House. So tough week for the mooch. And I'll be uh, happy to admit I'm I'm sad to see him go. He was very entertaining. Yep. Sorry Uh, to see him go like a candle in the wind. Uh, All right. Some uh, some some real news you should be either concerned or happy about the company that obtained a permit to build the controversial Keystone XL oil pipeline, 
may not build it at all, after all. Uh, a TransCanada Corporation executive told investors on Friday that they're still assessing interest in Keystone among the oil companies that would uh, pay to use that Canada to Texas to the, the Orient yes. pipeline, <laughs> uh, as well as uh, seeking remaining regulatory approval, and it will likely decide in November or December whether to build the pipeline after all. After all of that, after all that sturm and drang, uh, it appears that the company says, you know what, we may not have as much interest in it as we thought, or at least uh, now that the world has changed and the dirty tar sands oil has found other ways to get to wherever it needs to get. Trump approved the Keystone permit uh, to cross the border with Canada back in March after President Barack Obama, remember him, uh, reje rejected the company's permit in late uh, 2015. Paul Miller, the president of TransCanada's liquid pipeline business, told investors in a quarterly earnings call that uh, the Keystone XL is far from certain. He said the Canadian company is launching an open season to actually uh, actively seek out contracts for the $7 billion uh, pipeline, which has the capacity of some 830,000 barrels. That's per day, isn't it? I, I think. believe so, yes. Uh, the company also needs approval from Nebraska for its route through the state. They still do not have approval from, from Nebraska. Oh, yeah. You know, when, when Trump uh, rescinded and re-approved the Keystone mm -hmm. XL pipeline cross-border permit with Canada, that did not change what's still on the ground in Nebraska, you know, where they still have landowners, ranchers, uh, residents, all complaint tribes complaining about they do not want this, and those those existing problems are still existing, and they still have to get that that new route approved by the Nebraska state legislature. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a huge number of hurdles, not least of which is the low price of oil, which has, you know, reality setting in that it's not going to be as profitable. It's very expensive to so extract tar sands, and it's just not worth the cost. So all the stuff about lefties like you preventing this Keystone XL from being built and the, uh, what were we up to? About 30,000 jobs. <laughs> Whatever, we're, we're 11 come billion jobs right. that we're going uh, to come so with. So all yeah. of that's uh, not actually true. It's actually landowners who are against eminent domain. It's actually Republicans in the Nebraska Senate. Yeah. Uh, and the, the governor there who are against it. Go figure. So, you know, for all those, I don't even know that Donald Trump knows that the Keystone XL pipeline has not yet been built. He <laughs> believes, I'm no, I'm serious. He may not be aware. He, You're right. Yeah, because he talks about it all the time. We, we did the Keystone XL, so he thinks that's done. Uh, in, in any event, um, the, uh, the, the company said in the event that we do decide to proceed with the project, we'll still probably need six to nine months to do some of the staging of the construction crews and to get approval for it all. Yeah. Uh, and that would be followed by about a two-year construction period. So there is still time to stop the keep for lefty uh, like you, environmentalists like you, Desi Doyne, to still stop the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, other pipelines uh, have taken up much of the Alberta tar sands oil and the Bakken region oil that was going to go through Keystone, so we'll see. Also, as you mentioned, the uh, glut of oil and natural gas on the market have kept these prices now way down. 
There's just not as much demand anymore. Oil demand has remained flat as the rise of renewables, the rise of electric cars, uh, the rise of energy efficiency. All of these have suppressed oil demand at the same time as the United States has suddenly become a major oil exporter. So it, that's why we have these low oil prices And right it doesn't now. make sense for this huge, dirty oil infrastructure, these projects like Keystone. Uh, well, in any event, they make less and less sense as that happens. But hey, who has ever suggested that uh, Donald Trump's policies make sense. The reason you should be concerned, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons you should be concerned about Donald Trump's policies was uh, detailed in uh, two separate studies that uh, came out this week. Uh, By the end of the century, the global temperature is likely to rise more than 2 degrees Celsius. That's uh, about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. That rise in temperature, according to CNN, is the ominous conclusion reached by two different studies using two completely different methods, each published in the journal Nature Climate Change this week. One study used statistical analysis to show that there is a 95 percent chance that Earth will warm more than two degrees at century's end and just a one percent chance that it stays below 1.5 degrees Celsius. The likely range of global temperature increase is anywhere from 2 to almost 5 degrees Celsius. Now, let's be clear about that. That 5 degrees Celsius uh, projected on the far end, the the, the high Mm -hmm. end of of a warming. That would be about 9 degrees Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Yeah, that would be catastrophic. That's what, uh, at 4 degrees Celsius, the World Bank, in their study, called it incompatible with human civilization. So but, five degrees, I think, would also be considered incompatible. But the, yeah, and the medium median forecast in this, uh, in this first study uh, is 3.2 degrees Celsius. So we're talking about, uh, quick math there, it's about five or six degrees. Yeah, it's quite a bit. And, you know, two degrees already, that's what was established and agreed upon in the Paris Climate Accords by almost every nation on Earth. Of course, now not Trump, but anyway. So the two degrees Celsius target, that's already dangerous. We're already at one degree Celsius. We're already seeing increase above pre-industrial levels, and we're already seeing extreme weather increase, sea level rise increase, uh, longer droughts, more persistent heat waves, crop failures. So we're seeing the issues already. Two degrees was sort of a safe guardrail that we thought we could adapt to. After two degrees, it's All really dicey. All bets are dicey. off, yeah. yeah. Uh, the second study analyzed, and this is a one, This is a thing that I, I, I try to repeat a lot, but I don't think people really appreciate this. The second study analyzed past emissions of greenhouse gases and the burning of fossil fuels to show that even, even if humans su- suddenly stopped, stopped burning all fossil fuels now, today, We just stopped. We suddenly went to solar, wind, whatever. Even if everything stopped, Earth will continue to heat up two more degrees, no matter what, by 2100, according to this study. It also concluded that if emissions continue for just 15 more years, which is certainly more likely than uh, suddenly stopping, that Earth's global temperatures could rise as much as three degrees. And that's if we completely stop in just 15 years from now. So both of these studies kind of saying we're screwed, Des. Yeah, they are. And and so there's a couple of things that go along with that. One of them is that these are based on our current emissions trajectories based on today. Mm-hmm. So that is based on what the United States is not doing today. That doesn't mean we're never going to do anything. It doesn't mean any other countries are never going to do anything. It also... 
talks about the fact that we don't have certain technologies that have not been developed yet that are still possible, like what what are called negative emissions technologies, things like planting trees that absorb carbon taking dioxide, taking carbon out taking of the carbon atmosphere. actively out of the atmosphere. There are scientific ways, there yeah. are technological ways, there are, you know, agriculture-based ways of doing that, forestry. So there are a number of techniques that can be implemented. Some will need to invent in order to actually draw, actively draw CO2 out yeah, of the well, air. Yeah, well, good luck with that. And I do also want to yeah. add one quick thing about yeah. this. Michael Mann, you know, our friend of the show, he's also the very famous climate scientist, yeah. the author of the Hockey Stick Graph. Um, he, as, he was really critical of the methods used in these particular studies. And this is what he said. He's quoted in an interview in Gizmodo. He said, quote, The new study is based purely on socioeconomic trends and assuming that those trends can foretell the future. That ignores the fact that political will depends on many factors that cannot be predicted based on our past behavior. So he's saying, you know, look, there's a chance that, you know, with the policies that we have in place, the growth of renewable energy, Mm. we don't exactly know where that's going to go. These could possibly potentially be not as bad as they read. Could. Could. I think he's being overly optimistic, but that's just me. I'm not a, uh, a, a doctor of physics. Well, in other uh, words, he's he saying, is. yeah, there is a certain amount he's of He's trying work. to be positive. He continues he to be positive. Every time we have him on the show, I mean, because if you look at his work, he's the author of, you know, doom and gloom, but he comes on and says, we can do this. We can change this. We can fix this. And maybe he's right. I'm hoping that he is right. I agree. I uh, hope he is right, too. It's the difference between physics versus politics. And, and he's saying this is based kind of on politics. Well, well, both of these studies came out before the or at least the data was gathered for them. They were completed before the U.S. announced that it was leaving the Paris Agreement under President Trump. So that could make things even worse right. from whatever they were figuring in these two separate polls, finding the same thing using different methodology. I know. But OK. We'll uh, we'll listen to Dr. Mann there. Uh, by the way, the the two degree mark, I was uh, struck by this um, three point six degrees Fahrenheit. That was set by the 2016 Paris Agreement. It was first proposed as a threshold that we must not go over. Right. Uh, by Yale economist William Nordhaus back in 1977. So, you know, for those who say, oh, uh, climate scientists uh, have just come up with this whole global warming thing. Uh, no, uh, there have been uh, people warning about this for quite some time. And trying to figure out how to deal with it for quite some time. We have all the tools we need. We just got to get in gear and do it. The uh, CNN piece here also notes that 12.6 million people die globally due to pollution, extreme weather, and climate-related, uh, climate-related disease. Climate change between 2030 and 2050 is expected to cause 250,000 additional global deaths, according to the World Health Organization. So 12.6 million people die due to all of that, according to the WHO, and you can add another quarter million uh, of that uh, if, if we don't do something about this mess that we're facing. Uh, Speaking of this mess that we're facing, uh, some sort of good news here before we get to our break and our guest. A federal court told the EPA on Monday that it must enforce an Obama administration methane pollution rule. The order from the Court of Appeals for the uh, District of Columbia Circuit came after the judges gave the agency a two-week reprieve from its earlier ruling in July, finding that the EPA had broken the law when it tried to delay enforcement earlier. 
So uh, very quickly, does this methane rule, which what is this? Uh, this is a methane rule that establishes limits for methane pollution mm-hmm. from new equipment and facilities that are being drilled right now for fracking and for oil production and natural gas production. This uh, rule did not apply to existing facilities, just, just the new ones. And it requires oil companies to find and repair any methane leaks on a very firm schedule. Uh, the reason why is because methane is a very potent green greenhouse gas, more potent than carbon dioxide on shorter timescales. And also, when you have methane leaks, you also have leaks of other toxic pollution like benzene and volatile organic compounds that cause asthma and heart attacks and stuff like that. Despite the fact that the court uh, several weeks ago had said, no, EPA, you cannot rule, uh, just roll back this rule It was a 90-day stay yeah. is what he wanted. So. Uh, well, despite that, uh, the Trump administration has not asked the entire 11 judge court to rehear the case, which would they would normally do after they get a ruling from a three judge panel. So that's kind of unusual. The fossil fuel industry uh, and Republican run states, uh, they are now asking uh, for the uh, judges to reconsider all of this in the coming weeks. But the EPA did not do it. Uh, By the way, that rule which sets standards for oil and natural gas drilling uh, is is to reduce emissions of methane and those other gases. Uh, It's also a ripoff to taxpayers, isn't it? Yes, it is, because when you have public land being drilled, Mm -hmm. the oil industry is supposed to pay royalties to the public for the natural gas extracted from our public lands. So when they allow those leaks to happen, that's billions of tons of methane going out into the atmosphere that they don't have to pay the public for. Nonetheless, the EPA is uh, still working through the regulatory process, you know, the right way to do this in order to try to uh, at least get a a two-year extension on this rule. So that is still moving forward. And you got one more? I got Yeah, this yeah. is really important here. So the EPA wants that two-year delay so it'll have time to review the potential negative impact on oil and gas companies. <laughs> yeah. Now, the kicker here is that the Environmental Defense Fund points out that the EPA, in making that announcement that it was going to look for that two-year delay, actually admitted that it will make children sick because of the air pollution caused by these methane leaks. But yeah, but, but it, will it hurt argues businesses. that hey, it's only two more years of making kids sick, so it's okay. Unbelievable. Yep. All right. Uh, so uh, we have at least the courts protecting us there at least sort of kind of for the moment. At least some of them barring the Republican stolen majority on the US Supreme Court. You know, we still have some judges who are willing to hold the uh, Trump administration to the rule of law. The EPA obviously is now a renegade industry uh, agency at this point, now completely corrupted. Yep by uh, industry interests. But as we noted last week when we interviewed a former head of the Congressional Budget Office, there are still some federal agencies that are holding the line that have not been entirely captured by the bad guys. That was certainly the case for the CBO. Another one of those federal agencies is the Government Accountability Office. And a recent report and a sting operation that they ran may shock you. I know that it shocked me. Uh, That story is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. 
to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thank you. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You may recall way back in 2014, oh, it was a different world, as protests flared up in Ferguson, Missouri back then after the killing of an unarmed black man, Michael Brown, how the local police in Ferguson rolled out huge armored military vehicles and, and weapons of war in response to these protests. Many Americans at the time were shocked to see such a small police force like Ferguson's with weapons of war at their disposal. And many then learned of the Defense Department's program that gives such equipment away for free to local law enforcement agencies under the so-called 1033 program. As reporters dug into the issue at the time, including folks at the nonprofit investigative journalism uh, outfit Marshall Project, many were stunned to learn about uh, the facts of the program and that under it, groups like, for example, the Los Angeles Unified School District had actually received grenade launchers from the Defense Department's surplus equipment program. Police in Johnston, Rhode Island, with a population of less than 29,000, acquired two bomb disposal robots, 10 tactical trucks, 35 assault rifles, more than 100 infrared gun sights, and two pairs of footwear designed to protect against explosive mines. The Johnson Police Department has just 67 sworn officers. The Parks Division of Delaware's Department of Natural Resources was given 20 M16 rifles, while the Fish and Wildlife Enforcement Division obtained another 20 M16s, plus uh, 8 M14s and 10 45 caliber automatic pistols. Campus police at the University of Louisiana Monroe received 12 M16s to help protect 8,800 students there, or as the Marshall Project adds, perhaps to keep them in line. The Warden Service of Maine's Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife received a, a small aircraft, 96 night vision goggles, 67 gun sights, and 7 M14 rifles. That all, of course, is just a tiny sampling of the program. For more than 20 years, the Pentagon program that distributes surplus weapons, aircraft, and vehicles to police departments nationwide received little attention or scrutiny. Defense Department officials closely guarded the details of which agencies across the country received which items, and the program kicked into much higher gear following the 9-11 attacks. As of that Marshall Project report in late 2014, the program has doled out uh, some $5 billion in often lethal taxpayer-purchased equipment since 1990, including tactical military equipment from high-powered weapons to mine-resistant armored vehicles to airplanes and helicopters worth more than $1.4 billion, disseminated in some 203,000 transfers to about 7,500 agencies, all free of charge to the agencies who ask for them. Many raised concerns at the time, back in 2014, about local police agencies, including campus police, being armed with tactical equipment intended for combat on foreign soil. 
Public uproar prompted uh, then-President Barack Obama to issue an executive order to create a formal weapons request process with more stringent guidelines. At the time, Pentagon officials at the Defense Logistics Agency, or DLA, were tasked with a review process to institute such guidelines. But as a recent report and kind of a shocking sting operation by the U.S. Government Accountability Office discovered recently... Uh, shocking holes, security holes, remain in the program itself. As The Atlantic reports this week, the Defense Logistics Agency, an agency with the Department of Defense that was recently found to have weaknesses in its equipment transfer program, is suspending all transfers of excess military gear to federal law enforcement agencies until they comply with new registration measures said Mike Cannon, the director of DLA Disposition Services during a House Armed Services Committee hearing on Thursday. Cannon and Mike Scott, the deputy director of logistics operations at DLA, testified before the panel to discuss the findings of a recent GAO report published in mid-July, which revealed that the Law Enforcement Support Office managed by DLA, distributed over 100 controlled items with an estimated value of $1.2 million to a fictitious federal law enforcement agency created by the GAO during its review. Also testifying at that hearing was Zena Merritt, who oversaw the rather stunning sting operation by the GAO, she is the Director of Defense Capabilities and Management at the U.S. Government Accountability Office. The GAO is an independent, nonpartisan agency that works for Congress, often called the Congressional Watchdog. The GAO investigates how the federal government spends tax dollars to help improve the performance and ensure the accountability of the federal government for the benefit of the American people. Director Merritt testified in the U.S. House on Thursday about that sting operation before the House Armed Services Committee. And I'm happy to say she joins us now. Zena Merritt, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you very much, Brad, for having me on. Really glad to have you here. Uh, this report, uh, i, I got to say, I was absolutely amazed at the ease with which it seems the GAO was able to set up essentially a fake website, create fake IDs, and obtain more than a million dollars worth of, uh, well, what could be uh, weapons or near-lethal weapons. Uh, tell me about this sting, how you guys set it up, and, and what were you actually able to obtain there uh, through this fake website you created? Sure, Brad. Um, there's been questions about GAO's role and do we often do these kind of operations? Mm -hmm. And the answer is... We do operations such as this. For example, we've done similar operations with the Affordable Care Act work mm -hmm. where we were approved for subsidized health care coverage. Mm -hmm. We've also done work related to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission mm. licensing process. There we were able to um, actually get a license as a fictitious organization Jeez. for this particular review. Um, in the course of doing our work, we had basically looked at all of the processes, including the basic application that a federal agency had to submit, and we decided to do internal control testing. Mm -hmm. The impetus for that really was the fact that we had made a lot of recommendations regarding improving this program over the years, 
not just us, but DOD and DLA's Inspector General offices had also made a number of recommendations. Mm -hmm. So we identified one particular weakness which triggered our investigation, and at that point we decided to go about creating it. And as you said, the first step was actually completing the uh, application, which their application it was available online. We completed it. We submitted it online. Um, and all you had to have in order to do that was a website um, as well as a point of contact, a physical location, and actual names of um, points of contact within the agency. Also, you had to identify how many particular sworn um, officials that you had as a part of your agency. So we created all of that, and we submitted it. Um, we did get one question regarding um, what was our statute authorizing our agency, mm -hmm. and we provided them with a statute, but the statute really had nothing to do with law enforcement at all. So therefore, they did not verify that either. Wow! And so this, so all of this, just to be clear, this website you you set up, these IDs you made for people, it was they, it was all completely fake, right? There was no uh, actual uh, police agency uh, or anything else. It was all completely fake. I could have done this uh, had I wanted to. Yes, if you knew and if you understood the procedures and the application itself. Uh, really was a pretty streamlined application. The uh, the items that you obtained were not lethal, I don't think, but they could have been made so, as I understand. Uh, but more to the point, could you have actually obtained lethal weapons under the same guise, as far as you can tell, or, or would there be an additional process for that kind of gear? There is an additional step. For example, if we had tried to obtain rifles, um, the ATF would have had to also approve that. However, once you're approving the program, you really can um, actually try to obtain both non-lethal and lethal. And while we didn't test that particular part, we were definitely approved to receive those type of items as well. Wow. Uh, do, do we have any evidence one way or another if uh, you guys are obviously not bad guys here setting up this fake uh, uh, site and so forth? Do we have any evidence one way or, uh, or another if actual bad guys have been able to do this in the past? We do not have evidence that bad guys, per se, have been able to do this. We are aware that there has been at least one other fictitious organization that applied as a federal organization that did get approved and did receive items. However, um, we do know that they are being investigated, and that investigation is ongoing. According to your report, uh, your investigators pretending to be officers made three different trips to uh, uh, three different warehouses with these forged uh, IDs to pick up items like night vision goggles, infrared uh, pointer weapons, simulated rifles, simulated pipe bombs. At uh, two of the three warehouses, on-site personnel did not ask for identification from the person who came to pick up the weapons. Uh, first thing that occurred to me, uh, Zena, good thing you weren't going there to vote. You'd have been stopped in your tracks. 
but is it uh, is it true that you were able to that, that these were once you knew where to go and once uh, you knew where to pick up these things that no ID was asked they just handed you these weapons? Yes, that is very true. Um, in those in two instances of the three, um, they never ever checked the identification against the paperwork. Um, you you had to have a completed approval form with the list of items that you were to obtain at the location. Usually they would have the items already pre-packed for pickup. Mm -hmm. And so when our agent went there, he essentially showed them the paperwork and they provided him with the items. Wow. Uh, President Obama back in uh, 2015, I think it was, called for uh, more stringent oversight of this uh, program, this uh, 1033 program, as it's uh, known. Have there, in fact, uh, been positive changes to the program since his executive order back in, in 2015? And if so, uh, what type of changes were, uh, were, were instituted? I cannot actually comment on whether the uh, changes have been positive because we did not include that aspect in our particular review, mm -hmm. but we did um, actually look at the executive order, the type of items that were banned, and so far as we know, that program has been implemented. They set up a working group that was supposed to meet pretty regularly um, to provide some type of oversight and monitoring to ensure that process was done, but their um, DLA's inspector general really it's the party that was monitoring the actions of that. We did not look at that in particular as part of our review. Uh, on uh, Thursday at the uh, House hearing, at least some of the lawmakers were, were quite concerned about your findings, and I should say rightfully so, and you know, the ease with which you were able to obtain these uh, items. Congresswoman Carol Shea Porter of New Hampshire said, quote, there's more red tape to open up a donut shop than there is to get this equipment. Is she overstating the case there in, in your estimation, or, or is she on to something? Well, I think at the time when we did our testing, her analogy was, you know, quite accurate for that point in time. Mm -hmm. But also, as DLA indicated during the hearing, um, after we briefed them in March of this year, they actually took um, actions to suspend all of the federal agencies until mm. they had completed memorandums of understanding detailing um, the guidelines for the program and they also started actually going to physically visit um, the headquarter locations of the federal agencies and this is something they were not doing in the past they were doing this type of thing and they had a better handle on accountability of items at the state and local levels because they had a coordinator for those particular levels but they did not have a coordinator at the state i mean at the federal level mm. the, uh, during that uh, hearing also on thursday uh congressman austin scott of georgia who's a supporter of this 1033 program said that uh, uh the moment mike cannon and his agency the dla finds out who those individuals are that gave out the weapons, the agency will be prepared to take disciplinary action, and that can be anything from suspension without pay to removal from the position. But, uh, Zena Merritt, is this a, uh, as far as you can tell, is this a failure of one or two individuals, as he seems to suggest, or, 
or is this or was this a systemic structural pro uh, problem with the program itself as uh, as you see it well i don't think that one could say that what happened at those three locations can be generalized to over 200 of these warehouses across the country what we do know, it was a failure of those to follow established processes that they do have in place. Mm -hmm. So we are hopeful that they will do more spot checks and there will be more supervision of those personnel, whether it's the personnel who are currently working there or if they're dismissed, if they're new personnel, we are really hoping that they will have someone to ensure that they're following the processes. It's not an individual thing. It is a systematic breakdown mm -hmm. in the controls at every level. It sure seems like it. Um, as I noted in my uh, intro, uh, a lot of folks were shocked to see this kind of equipment at all at these uh, small you know, local police departments after the Ferguson protests uh, back in 2014. Uh, ha have changes been made uh, to the program, at least to more strictly... Uh, more closely restrict, I should say, the uh, specifically the, the weapons of war uh, from flowing into these small police departments? Or, or do we at least have better guidelines and approval processes now, even if there are holes in them, do we have uh, more stringent guidelines in place for those, kind of, uh, for those kinds of weapons since, uh, since 2014? Yes. Um, you spoke of grenade launchers. You spoke yeah. of some other items. Those items have been banned from the distribution um, to the state and local and federal um, agencies as a part of this particular program. Mm. And um, also things like camouflage uniforms as well, and also certain types of tactical vehicles were banned. All of this occurred, though, as part of the executive order mm -hmm. that was um, implemented starting in 2016. So that was part of the executive order, not part of the uh, uh, ND, the National Defense Authorization Act. In other words, that could be changed by the current president if uh, if he decided he wanted to. Yes, he, he could change any aspect of the program. Democratic Congressman Hank Johnson of Georgia uh, has twice introduced legislation to try to end this uh, uh, pipeline of military-grade weaponry going to local police forces in law. But uh, uh, this has been blocked. Republicans, uh, congressional Republicans, blocked those bills and instead voted to expand the 1033 program to uh, approve these requests uh, from nearly all state and local agencies, including university police departments. We've had him on the show a couple of times, Zena, uh, to talk about those efforts. In 2015, he was attempting to at least get an accounting of the weapons and equipment that was given out to law enforcement. I want to I play, if you don't mind, one, one, uh, one of the points he raised on the show at this time, and, and then I'll get your thoughts on it. You're right in terms of the horse having already left the barn to a large extent, just hundreds of millions of dollars of high-grade uh, military weaponry uh, already on the streets of the United States, and uh, I, I, that's the bad news. My legislation would, would provide that mm -hmm. before transferring any property under the 1033 Act that the DOD would uh, have to certify that uh, 
the agencies that had received equipment in the past can keep track of it and have accounted for each and every piece of equipment. That was Congressman Hank Johnson on the broadcast back in 2015. He went on to say that many weapons were apparently just disappearing. Some had been sold by the law enforcement groups. Uh, have there been any improvements to that aspect of the program in that regard, Zena, that you're aware of as far as tracking and use of this equipment that is already out there all over the country? The answer to that is yes. Um, there are a few things that have happened. One is actual, um, there is a link on DLA's Disposition Services website where you can see exactly who has received equipment mm -hmm. at the federal, state, and local levels, um, including controlled items. This is now one of the transparency measures so that the public at large can have better information on what's been provided. Also, um, each entity that is approved has to do an annual complete inventory of the items. For example, when my teams went to five states, they actually checked to see whether or not the inventory was being done, mm -hmm. and we actually had them to show us where the items were located. If they were not there at the particular central point, they were asked to bring them in so that we could see that there was full accountability. Also, on a number of occasions, um, DLA has suspended or terminated um, participants for violations mm. of the rules and regulations. And that has included if they have not done their inventories, if there was missing equipment, et cetera. So a number of entities have definitely been suspended. So that's good. So if, if uh, an agency, a law enforcement agency, received uh, 20 M16 rifles, uh, in theory, you or, or uh, the Defense Department ought to be able to go out and see that they still have those M16 rifles or at least some explanation about what happened to them if they do not. That is correct. Good. Uh, the uh, the couple of uh, more question, a couple of quick questions here for you before I let you go, Zena Merritt. Um, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2016 had called for the uh, a, a GAO assessment of this program, uh, and I think that's what led to this particular report. Now I know that they are working in Congress on the NDAA for 2017 right now in Congress. Are there any changes? Uh, to the 1033 program that you're aware of in um, in this version of the NDAA that they are working on uh, uh, following your findings? Um, actually, they are working on the 2018 NDAA. Oh, okay. And I am not aware of any provisions at this time, but both the Senate and the House, they have not gone to conference on it at this time, mm -hmm. so they very well could insert amendments. To it. Uh, what recommendations does GAO have following this particular report that, that you would like to see uh, uh, done at this point? Um, we made four recommendations to DLA. The first one, of course, was they needed to improve their application process and they needed to do some type of thorough um, verification of the entities. For example, like I said, um, one of the things that 
was incorrect on our application that they never verified. Mm-hmm. The actual physical location we had provided was actually an empty lot. <laughs> so they definitely need to go out and really check these physical locations. The second thing, um, this relates to the disposition sites themselves. As we discussed earlier, they really need to have some type of process to ensure that the persons working there actually check the credentials against who's listed on the paperwork as to who's picking up the items. (laughs) Third, one of the things that happened was that we ended up getting more items than we had requested. So no one was doing accurate accounting as to what was being distributed or picked up. So we made a recommendation that the persons working there need to accurately count before any items are removed from the facilities. And finally, GAO has established what we call a fraud risk assessment. Mm -hmm. Essentially, we recommended that for every phase of their process, they need to have a fraud and mitigation strategy, which would include determining points of potential vulnerability and having solutions and ways to detect if those vulnerabilities are there and how they would address them if ever something were to happen again, and not just address them, but address them in a very expedient manner. And those were the four recommendations. Oh, you uh, GAO people and your red tape uh, trying to protect us from loose weapons across the country. Uh, Zena, uh, thank you so much for your effort and your uh, your smart report here. Uh, before I let you go, we, ha- we recently had a, a former... Uh, Congressional Budget Office Director and uh, another congressional agency uh, on the show to discuss the sort of the ongoing attacks on that congressional office by uh, Republicans in the U.S. House. Is the GAO under any similar pressure these days from Congress or the White House? I, I ask because... Uh, I think we need you. I think we need the GAO, so I want to make sure that you guys are, are well protected at this point. There is no indication that we are at jeopardy. Um, actually, each year um, when we go in for our budget request, this year we actually came out pretty good. Um, I think given our return on investment based on the 3,000 people that we have mm-hmm. and the savings to the taxpayers that we render. I think Congress definitely sees value as evidenced by the hearing that I was at on yesterday. Well, there's some good news, and uh, we've been in short supply of that of late, so I will take it. Zena Merritt, Director of Defense Capabilities and Management at the Government Accountability Office. We'll put a, a, a link up to your uh, report at uh, bradblog.com. Zena, really appreciate you joining us here today. Thank you very much, Brad, for hosting. You bet. Thank you. Okay, a quick break, and we're we're back with uh, oh another uh, a Chris Kobach update, a very strange one. You remember him, right? Well, if you don't, stick around. We'll explain after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. 
We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Carry on my wayward son, there'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest, don't you cry no more. Welcome back to the broadcast. Uh, we will get to Kansas's wayward son, <laughs> Chris Kobach. And you see, the song is actually by Kansas. See? And it's important to explain this because <laughs> jokes are always funnier when you have to explain them. Uh, but I just, you know, uh, Zena Merritt, great talking to her. I get some, I, I, I take some comfort when I talk to government officials like that who are clearly doing their job, taking their job seriously. Um, doing what Congress has uh, told them to do. It's just nice to see. It's nice to hear. I enjoy that, even though what she found is disturbing. I'm glad to know that there's, you know, that still good, government officials yeah, out there. There are still good folks on the job doing the, doing the people's work. Uh, a, a not good government official, Chris Kobach, <laughs> Secretary of State of Kansas, is now seeking to avoid answering questions under oath about uh, two documents containing plans for changes to U.S. election law. This is really strange. All right, Kobach, you know him. Uh, he's the vice chair. He's really heading up the uh, uh, Donald Trump's commission, so-called Election Integrity Commission. It's actually a voter suppression commission, in my opinion. In any event, um, he's involved with this other case with the ACLU, who has been... Uh, challenging his proof of citizenship voter registration requirement in Kansas now for years. This case continues to go on and on and on. And by the way, Kobach keeps losing. But in any event, um, he filed Kobach filed notice late Monday in this case that he is appealing to the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in order to submit to a deposition by the uh, ACLU in this voting rights case in Kansas. It's supposed to be a closed deposition scheduled for Thursday where he answers questions under oath. And he's trying to block that from happening. The ACLU said today that Kobach's appeal of the deposition order to the Tenth Circuit is, quote, bizarre. Two federal judges in Kansas uh, in recent weeks, as we've reported, have each twice now ruled the uh, Kansas Republican misled the federal court about the contents of documents that he was photographed taking into a November meeting last year with then-President-elect Trump, as well as a separate draft amendment to the National Voter Registration Act. Kobach was holding the documents at his side with the print facing out so that we could see, so that photographs photos, yeah. Ma yeah, made it possible to see part of what was written on it. And then he lied to the court about that document that photographs showed him holding. So the court fined him $1,000, uh, ordered him to testify about those documents. And uh, the photographs had prompted ACLU to uh, seek to obtain the documents and any related materials on his proposed changes to federal voting law. He essentially told the court uh, and the ACLU that he didn't have any such documentation. But there's a photo right there. Uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, so now his appeal to the Tenth Circuit. So he was he was dinged by the court twice. He appealed it, and and in both cases the court found a pattern 
Of deception. Of deception by uh, by Kobach here. And now he's appealing to the Tenth Circuit to try to avoid having to testify under oath at all. U.S. District Judge Julie Robinson said uh, that Kobach has demonstrated a pattern of misleading the court about the facts and the record in this voting rights case in uh, in Kansas. And remember, this is the guy heading up the so-called Election Integrity Commission for the president of the United States. He's out there busy uh, essentially lying to the uh, federal court, trying to not testify under oath. And this guy is an experienced lawyer. It's not like he's oh, some yeah. neophyte who doesn't know what he's doing. No, and he's still the uh, secretary of state of Kansas, and now he's uh, announced he's going to be running for governor of Kansas. In a recent filing in this case, Kobach noted that after these uh, court-ordered redactions, these two documents in question that the ACLU is is trying to get at, uh, the two documents in question are just one page each and combined contain just six sentences. Doug Bonney, the legal director of the ACLU of Kansas, says there has been a tremendous amount of work done to keep out six sentences from the public record. And that makes you wonder why, he says. The degree to which Kobach has fought over disclosure of these two documents is strange to me. What is in those two documents? Why doesn't he he want anyone to see them? We're talking about six lines. Uh, and why does he not want to testify under oath? It's not even, well, it's a deposition. I guess that's uh, testifying under oath that he's willing to go all the way to the uh, well, so far, the appellate court, maybe he'll go all the way to the Supreme Court in order to uh, avoid this deposition on Thursday. Very strange. Kobach argued in court uh, filing on Friday that the government's interest in keeping the documents from being publicly disseminated outweigh the ACLU's, quote, political agenda and financial interest in publishing them. And now he doesn't want to be deposed under oath. So what the hell is going on there? I don't know. And again, remember, he's the guy heading up Trump's fake voter fraud commission. We will keep our eyes on it. All right. Got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Zena Merritt of the USGAO, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can always download it and all of the other broadcasts for free at bradblog.com. Please consider, while you're there, stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.